the new album was yes. out in uh, October. N- October. Yeah. And the first song is a lullaby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, shortly after I did that Engadget show, probably yeah. I had a kid. Okay. Um, my son Wolf is going to turn three in um, one month. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I was just messing around with different ideas as I was working on the record, and ended up recording uh, just this thing that I used to kind of. I would I would sing it to him and kind of do the like I'm underwater sound. Like, yeah. When he was a little kid. And he loved it, and he would go to sleep. And I just recorded it and left it on the record and then ended up, at the last minute, deciding to put it first. Um, which turns it into something that feels more like a concept record about parenthood than it actually is. Yeah. Um, but it works well as an opener. It, it, it's interesting, because I always just sort of, like, I, I, have, I have this picture of you, you know, making music, and it's it, it kind of involves you just sort of messing around with dials and stuff until things come out. But this... You yeah, actually that's like, exactly right, but 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 in this case, the the melody came first. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And sometimes I write those melodies on guitar or other instruments and yeah. stuff. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's probably fifty fifty. You know, fiddling around with dials and like yeah. having a melody in my head. Do uh, I mean you know this is the question? This is sort of the inevitable question you you are going to be asked when the first song on the record is a lullaby. Is mm-hmm. you know how has has that impacted your, or I guess just kind of your life just shifting in general? Has it impacted your, your yeah, music writing? I mean, it, you know, it goes along with like a lot of other things that go with getting older. Yeah. Um, Are you mellowing out, Dan? Am I what? Are you mellowing out in your old age? I don't think I'm really that much different. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that happened since then also is uh, Sarah, my wife Sarah, and I and a couple of friends of ours all bought a place together. Oh. Um, and it's this place where there's a front house and a back house, and like a, we rent one of the parts out of it, and so it's kind of got this like big compound vibe. Um, and it's great. It's amazing. And so... Um, Definitely the biggest change in the last couple of years has been becoming a parent. Yeah. Um, but uh, it goes along with just like a whole slew of massive changes in the last couple of years. As far as what effect it's had on me, I don't know. I feel like even three years in is too early to sure. try and make sense of it. Um, but I think that one of the benefits that's come is I got better at working on music and the things that mm. I'm passionate about in like tiny, tiny chunks of time. Yeah. Um, and I have this space in the basement of the house where I can go at, down like at all hours and make noise. So, um, so sort of setting these, these, these parameters has made you more focused when, it when kind push of comes has. to shove. Yeah. Cause you were, I mean, you know, when I, sorry, when I, when I, yeah. you know, when we first met, I was, I was uh, interning and you were working at the onion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had a day job at that point. Yep. You have a day job now. Yep. Was there a gap in there? Were you ever just a full-time professional musician? Yeah, there was. There was a gap from, I don't know, maybe 2006 to 2010-ish. Yeah. Um, where I was just... Wor- it was like a good more, chunk of time. It was a good chunk of time. But I was, I was working like as a production assistant, just like random things around town. Yeah. But also, my band at the time, Parts and Labor, was yeah. busy enough on tour that I was... I was out of town enough that I never really could hold down a real job, and um, it was fun. And it was good, and it was exhausting. Um, and we did that, and at the you know the end of maybe four or five years of doing that, uh, there was clearly not any money to be made. Yeah. Um, so we all started figuring out other things. 
Well, you, you know, you said you said you, you couldn't hold down a, a job, but I, you know, I, I've got to imagine like you know you're sitting there because you you were working reception at the Onion, and yeah. you know, I, I I imagine you're just sort of sitting there, just like waiting for the day that you can just become a full time musician, right? Wasn't that the was oh, that yeah. the dream? Yeah, yeah, it was, and it was really exciting. Yeah. And you know, the moment I left. The Onion was when I was like, hey, guys, can I go away for another month? And they yeah. were like, not this time. Yeah. Uh, and they had said yes maybe three times already. Yeah. Uh, maybe four. Maybe four, like, month-long tours that I took. Um, and they were just kind of cool with it. You know, the the staff, the writing staff there bought me a guitar. They were, like, the most supportive work environment you could possibly have. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, um, it's, the, the AV club was still very much a part of it at the time. Yeah, and they had, a, yeah. they had a rock star in their midst. Of course, they were going to, they were trying <laughs> help, to help you help yeah. you on your career. Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, so I... I don't know. I We needed to go on another tour. I left The Onion um, and just sort of like futzed around for four or five years working odd jobs and playing music a lot yeah and uh yeah like i said i don't know we just realized that it wasn't really going to ever turn into a thing it just wasn't growing in that way hmm. so we all figured out other things to do with our time what what, what does growth mean i mean because you know it was it was a successful band in terms of like that tier of music right? it's true but that's not a tier that makes a lot of money and yeah, it's also a okay. tier that has a pretty short lifespan sure um, How many albums? Um, we did five full-length wow. albums. Yeah. Uh, we did... The first one was in 2002, but then we did 2006, 2007, 2008, three records in three years. And yeah. that was kind of what I did with the time right after I left The Onion, which yeah. is good. I felt like... It's like, all right, well, if I'm going to do this, I better do it. And we managed did to... You, you, do you have that sort of like that like George Harrison moment of like, I've got all of this pent-up stuff that I need to get out of me? It was like 50% that, and then yeah. 50% like, if I'm going to do this, sure. I'm gonna, I need to work. This is my job. It was like fight or flight yeah. at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like I wanted to prove to myself that if I was going to spend all my time making music, I was going to make a lot of music. I was going to make more music if I was going to put more time into it. Yeah. Yeah. E- easier... Uh you know, is it easier to produce when you're working with other people? It's a mixture. I mean, no, no, it's not a mixture. It's easier to make music when you're working alone, but it's yeah. not as fun. Uh, and there's, there's, you're less likely to just stumble upon magic. Yeah. Uh, when it's just you, you get, you know, you dig yourself into holes, just like creatively, you get into patterns you get into the systems uh that you don't even notice whereas if you're working with somebody else they will tell you you did that already yeah um you know and you'll fight uh and it'll be weird and ugly but you'll you know i think that the best things that parts and labor did were certainly the ones where we collaborated and butted heads the most you you and bj are both songwriters in the band yep yeah yeah, and you know Joe Wong, who played drums in the band for the last five years, yeah. also pitched in a lot and plays like a ton of instruments. And so, yeah, there was like that was a very collaborative trio. Was was it just my imagination, or did you go through a couple of drummers there for a little while? Early on, we went through. We had four total. In the, yeah, there was uh, in the first five years, we went through three drummers. There was Jim Sykes, who was in the band for six months. Joel Saladino, who was in the band for a year and a half. And then Chris Weingarten, uh, yeah. who's now at Rolling Stone. Yeah. Um, he left the band to pursue writing, and it worked out just fine for him. Sure. Um, and then Joe joined the band in 2007. 
uh, and was with it till the end. Okay, so it yeah. wasn't it wasn't a case of like we just keep losing drummers. Like clearly something isn't working out. I mean, out it here. was for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. But you, but you, but I mean, he was there for a while, so it sounds like he had like a pretty cohesive thing going at that point. Yeah, and I think Chris also. I mean, Chris wasn't crazy about touring, but I think Chris would have liked to have done it more. But he knew that he had to choose. Yeah, um, because he want he had the possibility of a real career doing music writing, which was something he was passionate about, and that's a pretty uncommon thing to have that possibility. And so he he had to he had to go with the one that made money, and he did. I mean, would, would you say like ultimately when when you look back, I mean, is 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 your favorite stuff that you've done the things that came out of that collaboration? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in each iteration of that band, um, the best stuff always came out of like yeah. everybody who was involved. You know, going back and forth and changing each other's ideas and stuff like that. And so I miss that when I work on stuff yeah. solo, but also. You know, it's a very pragmatic thing being, you know, someone who has a kid and, like, probably not going to quit the day job anytime soon. Um, I can go downstairs into the basement and work on music for two hours from, like, 11 to 1 at a moment's notice. And if I had a band, just scheduling those practices would be difficult. Do you, do, you, um, do you have to push yourself though to, to make time to make music? Oh, I mean, of course. And, and it's do, you, do you set like do you set hours for yourself like an office job? I mean, it's not that I. Yeah, I guess I set hours. I yeah. know that after Wolf goes to bed at like eight thirty or whatever, I'm going to want to fall asleep immediately. Yeah. Um, and I can't do that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just have to know that most of the time that I'm working on music now, I'm going to be exhausted. It's going to be like really late at night or really early in the morning or something like that. Um, just deal with it. Did, did you did you have that, that, that sort of concern early on that like, all right, well, wife and kid, like I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep doing the music thing. Of course. Of yeah. course I did. Um, but I also got to a place where I had done enough musically that I felt like, Maybe if this is all I do for the rest of my life, you know, for decades, it's not going to be enough. Hmm. Um, Your catalog is incomplete. Yeah, maybe it's going to become less satisfying and I'm going to need something else. And that doesn't mean it has to be a kid. Um Oh, you don't like, you don't mean just like like the the music is no no I mean like, your like life, as a your, life your, your, yeah yeah your yeah. human existence on Earth is incomplete yeah yeah um, you know to have multiple things going on so that if the music does become less satisfying for a while you know you don't just end up banging your head against a wall you can sort of shift your attention yeah. to some other important project like a human being that you're raising um, that's yeah. I don't know. That's part of what I yeah. was thinking about um, when I decided. Yeah, okay. I think we should do this now. But I mean, you can always, you know, you can always collaborate with more people. You can always it's have true. more musical projects. It's and- true. It's true. What I mean is, it occurred to me that playing music in general might not be yeah. enough to keep me, you know, feeling like I was doing everything I could with my life. Yeah. You know, ten, twenty years from now. Were you looking at other creative avenues also, or was it just like, all right, music, kid, these are the two things I can do? Well, I mean, obviously, there's also the negotiation process of Sarah having wanted to have a kid and me being sure. like, I don't know. Um, You're, you weren't like, all right, honey, I figured it out. This is what the next 18 years of our lives are going to look like. 
Well, sort of. I mean, for the longest time, you know, I think like a lot of couples, we would go yeah. back and forth, and she would, she was always someone who wanted to have kids. And when we got married, I was like, yeah, I, I could do this. Uh, and then when we decided to do it, you know, fortunately for us, we were at a place where I was like, I, this is what I want to do right now. Yeah. So it worked out well. Do, do, I, do you? I mean, do you work through things musically? You know, when you're when you're trying to when you're at these like, you know, these crossroads of life. You mean, do I, like, work through life problems via yeah. music? I know that's a loaded question, but I'm just thinking, you know, I'm just thinking, because, again, like, when, when if, if people are kind of framing this new record, again, a concept record is, is a really dumb, probably, phrase to use to refer to it, but, um, you know, certainly in some ways I assume that it's a, it's a reflection of where you are. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, and I think, I mean, especially when you're dealing with instrumental music, too, it's good to <clears throat> take a step back and look at what defines it yeah. and try and place a couple of ideas and images there for the listener to think mm. about while they're listening to it. Um, that's something that I do pretty intentionally. And, you know, in a more abstract way, there was a solo record I did that was all... Melodically, it had a little bit of like a... Morricone like western soundtrack yeah. feel in some places yeah. so I called it Ghost Town and I gave it a bunch of sort of vaguely post-apocalyptic western hmm. titles um, were, were you watching a lot of that at the time? I'm usually watching or reading a lot of that yeah, yeah. you know I just read Blood Meridian or something like that yeah um, that's bleak though man that's bleak um, for a guy who just had a kid a couple of years ago <laughs> I mean <laughs> You gotta you gotta take in the whole spectrum. One of the first things I did when I was starting to think about having a kid was read Lord of the Flies for the first time. Um, Go know. on, no, I, I'm giving you a weird look, but because you, I don't know, I just wanted to think about the worst case scenarios of childhood and like. So, so you you had some idea of what this book was about. You knew that it was about really bad kids. Oh yeah, no, I knew. I mean. <laughs> Everybody doesn't everybody yeah know by what? osmosis sure sure yeah 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 I think we all know at this point but I was like you know reading books about you know yeah cognitive development and I read Lord of the Flies also but it's not but it's not like you know it's not like you know reading like uh, Doctor Spock or something it's like <laughs> yeah it's, it's a, it is a, it is a more abstract kind of learning but yeah yeah <laughs> man how did we get there. One of the things I was thinking about, going back to the question about, I don't know, how it's affected me, it was yeah. more just like a life lesson about if I was going to offer advice to people who are thinking about whether they're going to have kids and aren't, is like, if you don't have kids, you probably have the ability to manage your time and be more productive than you, than you possibly know. Like, I feel like that's something that a lot of people learn as parents. They're like, oh, I can yeah. just, like, really step up my game as far as, like, figuring out that I can make a record by doing it in these, like, little hour chunks. Yeah. Like, if I was as productive in the little amounts of time that I have now as a parent, before I was a parent, I probably would have created more art. If you want to feel bad about how you've squandered your <laughs> time up until this point, then, then have a kid. Is that... <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying, like... yeah. Uh, you'll figure it out. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Yeah. Is so you know it's so. What are you doing now? Where, where, where did you just come from? I have a day job where I work doing 
grant writing, basically, like okay. helping with the fundraising of a small nonprofit. And they do vaguely uh, service learning stuff where they bring high school kids in to work at soup kitchens and food pantries. Yeah. Um, the coolest part of it is that they use the a school cafeteria in the evening and have the kids make dinner and serve it to dinner guests that come in from shelters. Mm. And then they all sit down together and eat and chat. I just, you know, it's interesting because I assume that you've accrued, like, all these, you know, really useful skills between some of the electronic stuff you've done and obviously the music stuff you've done and um, did, did, did you ever want to get a position that was a little bit closer to music making you know no not to music making or, or um, at least just to what you know your, your, your passions I think about it sometimes the first job I had in New York the job that I moved here for was yeah. working for Knitting Factory Records uh, in the 90s, Knitting Factory had a label that put out a lot of the like improvised experimental music yeah. that they were known for back then. Not so much now. Um, and I loved that stuff. I like got hooked on it when I was like 16. And so I moved here right out of college uh, and got a job working um, for the label, booking tours, like U.S. tours for people on the label who yeah. couldn't get agents. And it was a terrible job horrible work environment great people uh that's where i met bj that's what where parts and labor came from yeah um but uh i it was the least productive musical period of my life hmm. like i would leave that place and just hate music yeah um and i don't think it was just that it was a bad work environment and i think it was making music my work during the day i think is not healthy for me making my own music at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's more important to me to put myself in the best possible place to write music. Do you, so you, you play you play guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, any other instruments? Uh, technically, I have a degree in upright bass. Oh. Uh, what happened? I don't know, man. <laughs> um, I went to school. I went to college um, studying music. Uh, hey, mom and dad. Um, well, I got I, I managed to get myself uh, like a a decent scholarship. Okay. I've, I've told this one this story uh, recently on another sure. another podcast thing, but I'll, I'll just throw it out there again. Uh, I got into school on a um, on a scholarship, but performance probation. They were like, "We're going to give you money to come here, but you kind of suck at the guitar." Um, mixed message. Um, yeah. And, and I was, like, coming out of, you know, playing in noise bands in, in yeah. high school. Uh, and I was, I was really passionate about jazz at that time. Turns out I hate jazz guitar. Um, so I switched halfway through to upright bass and sort of scraped through doing that while, like, kind of focusing more on the composition and theory stuff, which was more interesting to me anyway. It, it, it's an interesting concept that you, that you liked jazz you started to play jazz guitar and realized that you hated jazz guitar. Like you oh, hated, yeah. you hated what? Just the the chords. You just hate the way jazz guitar sounds. There's no. Hmm. Okay. I mean, that's a blanket statement that I have to add some caveats to. Sure. Uh, you know, Sonny Chirac is amazing. Yeah. There's there's exceptions. Django um, Reinhardt. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm not gonna. You know, you can't fuck with Django. Um, but. There was a. I mean, you do. When, you know, when I think of you know, I, I guess when I think of jazz guitar, other than like, you know, Charlie Christensen and Jacob Reinhardt, I think of, um, 
elevator jazz. Right. There is a politeness to jazz guitar yeah. that you don't... Yeah. That is not as inherent in almost any other instrument that's associated with the genre. Um, and, you, and you felt like you had to adhere to that? I mean, you know, obviously... If like I was going to go to school, yeah. take the time and, like, the money to go to college... It was just not where I wanted to invest that. So, but at that point, I had done enough learning about music that I, you know, had gotten really interested in Charles Mingus, uh, Dave Holland, all these jazz bass players. And I realized it was badass uh, and also a good, for some reason, cognitively, uh, an easier way for me to wrap my head around harmony was to, mm. like, just start from the bass notes. Yeah. It worked out well for me. Yeah. I, I, I guess, you know, I guess if you want to figure out the skeletal structure of a jazz song, either probably the bass or the drums are probably the way to go, right? The bass is, like, this beautiful midpoint because when you're playing the drums, you're less... You might not learn as much about harmony. Yeah. Um, when you're playing bass, you kind of have to do both. And that's kind sure. Of, I mean, I guess Mingus like is an example of like he was musical on the bass. He wasn't just keeping time. He oh, was, yeah, I mean, he was writing, you know, yeah. massive, you know, for massive ensembles, and yeah, yeah. So you you're in school. You're you're planning to pursue a career in jazz. No, no. I I mean, I don't think I really knew what I was doing. Sure. I think it was not probably most people who go to school for jazz bass don't know what they're. A lot do. of people who go to college don't know what they're yeah. doing, uh, and I didn't. Um, I I did a like music management program where there were business classes. There was this hilarious dude who, not funny in a good way, who was like a manager for Boston and all this <laughs> other shit. Who uh, did music business classes the yeah. last year I was there. I remember I wrote a paper about. Steve Albini's Some of Your Friends Are Already This Fucked article. Yeah. Do you know this one? Remember? Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. like this classic thing about the evil of the, the major label system in the 90s. Um, and he did not like it. I got bad <laughs> grades. Uh, the, bo- called, the manager of Boston called, was not a Steve Albini fan? He called, uh, he called the Fugazi $5 ticket yeah. rule um, a gimmick. Uh, you know. Well, good gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, I, I think it's a morally defensible gimmick, I yeah. guess. But, but, um, but that's interesting. I mean, that you know, that sort of that seems to be kind of the germ of like, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to keep making music, but I do sort of want to be around it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was part of I think maybe a little bit of a compromise with my parents too. Yeah. They were like, "You can't make money money doing this." And sure. also, we've heard the music that you like, yeah. Um, which at that point they had. Um, but they were they've always been super supportive yeah and they were like why don't you take some of these business classes and sure. figure it out um, and it was at the end of the day probably dumb uh, if I was going to go to music school again I would maybe go for composition or probably just not at all um, but you know it happened I made a lot of great friends I learned a lot of great things uh, I was near enough to New York that I could come down and see music um, it worked out well did you play any any jazz outside of school after not after college? really? No. I play. I mean, I definitely. I moved back to Western Mass for a couple of months. Played a bunch there. Moved here. I probably pulled out my upright, you know, maybe a dozen times in yeah. that first year. And I think working at Knitting Factory made me hate jazz. And there was like, there's been, you know, that's 15 years ago, and I'm coming back now. But there was 10 years where I was just like, yeah, I'm fucking done with this shit. Um, 
I, I assume that, like, you know, working at the Knitting Factory at that point, you know, aside from some really, like, you know, like, you're, like, John Zorn's coming through, that you're not necessarily seeing, like, the best side of jazz. Yeah, it's true. It was like, I, I came in as the empire was crumbling, for yeah. sure. Um, and the people that I associated with that scene, like Zorn, uh, were people who just wanted nothing to do with the people who were running Knitting Factory at that point. Yeah. Like, wouldn't talk to them on the phone. Um so, and the the music they were putting out was just, it was bad. It was very nepotistic. It was yeah. just like, it was it was bad news. Um, and so I just like burnt out on it. And like, you know, Bad Association was just like a badly run company and like, you know, shitty managers and stuff like that. So I just like, that was the point at which I actually sort of became interested in what was going on in like contemporary indie rock. And that was like 1999, 2000, I guess. Um, after having spent like most of you know from age fifteen to twenty two listening to primarily like either Albert Eiler or Man is the Bastard, uh, just like nothing but like yeah. you know noise, noise and yeah. like extreme you know hardcore and metal uh, and then jazz and improvised music, um, and so I started getting interested more in pop then, which is probably how I ended up doing the music that I'm still doing 15 years later. It, it, it's interesting because you know you're actually the the I think you're the person who turned me on to Amps for Christ many many years ago, and I think that the biggest parallel between what he does and and what you do, and I think this really this feeds you know, or, or this is kind of a direct lineage from what you were listening to is like it's kind of harmony emerging from the noise right i mean it's yeah. it's it's the din and then somewhere somehow out of there emerges yeah a clear harmony yeah i love i love music that walks that line yeah where the you know the melody sounds like it's fighting its way through and there's attention paid to texture and like just making just raw noise and mixing it with conventional songcraft. Amps for Christ is a great example yeah. of that, you know. Obviously, my buddy Valentine. Sure. Um, and then you can go farther back again to Albert Eiler, um, where there's like this one simple, you know, ice cream truck melody. Yeah. Uh, that you then just, you know, destroy. Or, or, or I think like you know like maybe the the, uh, the Silver Apples where it's yep sort of laying down this really kind of like hard rhythmic mechanical yeah, track yeah and no totally where yeah and it's balanced by these yeah. like very sweet melodies absolutely that's a good yeah. example too yeah uh, so when when do you when do you pick up the electronics when does that when does that come into play um, on this timeline I guess two thousand. Um, I I put down my upright bass. Uh, I stop listening to jazz as much. I'm picture I'm um, picturing that upright bass. You know, it's funny. I, I had a friend in Astoria, a really small apartment, and he was a um, a tuba player. Mm-hmm. And he brought his tuba with him from I think he was from the Midwest originally. Um, you know, and and the two years that he lived in that apartment, he probably played it twice. And I mean, talk about having like a very Talk about having an albatross, you know, about something where you've got really limited space and you're devoting it to this really large instrument. Yep. Something that's like, I mean, it's just, it's there. It's like every time you look in that corner of the room, you have a reminder of like this giant thing that you brought with you. Yep. 
Yeah, uh, and also maybe several years of your life at college. Yeah, um, yeah, it's that albatross for sure. Um, but I just I don't know. I didn't really think about it too much. I I actually I started listening to at that point a bunch of music on Thrill Jockey, which is where I ended up putting out my records. Yeah, um, Oval, uh, Mouse on Mars, people who were making sort of like playful, noisy, yeah, experimental electronic music. Uh, and that's where I made the leap to starting putting out solo records in like 2001. Was I mean I assume I assume that that figuring out that foundation, learning to play the bass, was useful, or was or were you was actively totally working useful. against it early on? No, no. I think that it, I think it was totally useful just for like developing an understanding of how melody and harmony and yeah. rhythm work. Um, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really trade that. Um, Maybe I just would have... I don't know. I don't know. Jazz school doesn't seem like the move I should have made. Sure. It's, but in the end, it did like help build a foundation of knowledge that I used to make music that I ended up wanting to make. But when you, know, when, when you were listening really heavily to, to noise, did you feel like you needed to work against that a little bit? To work against sort of all of that, that classical stuff that you learned? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, in a way... The decision to start studying properly, study like traditional music, yeah. came out of you know not being fulfilled by pure noise and like pure like aggressive angry music. Yeah, um, yeah. So ended up like starting pitting those two against each other kind of early on, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So so getting back to uh, to 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 the keyboards and the dials and the switches. Uh huh. When 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 did those come into play? 2000. Yeah. Yeah. I made an EP in 2000, put it out in 2001, uh, booked a tour while I was working at The Onion. Um, I think that was like probably only six months in. I think I was able hmm. to go on tour pretty easily because there was only like eight people in the office and there was no business staff yeah. and they didn't have a New York edition yet. And it was just kind of yeah. a lot of ping pong. Um, and me and Tyonde Braxton did like a two week tour. Uh, each put out a record that year. Yeah. Yeah, and that was kind of the beginning of it. What, what was the first setup like? It was not that different than what I do now. Uh, it, the, the key element is this keyboard that I got when I was eight. It's a Yamaha Portasound. Okay. Uh, it was about $50 yeah. in you know, 1984. It's about $50, maybe $100 now. It's on, the on same eBay. actual keyboard? I have the same actual one. I don't usually bring it on tour because yeah. it's like, you know, it's a little beat up, but it still functions, and I still yeah. use it to write music. I've bought backups on ebay um that through a bunch of distortion and then like you know fairly boring technical tricks there's a mixer where i plug one channel into itself uh which is like an old noise dude trick yeah and so one channel is just it feeding back into itself and then another channel is the keyboard going through it um is it was there like the desire that like i want to make this look a little more complicated than just me playing Cause, no, cause, I just wanted it to be nastier, you know. Yeah. I didn't want it to be, you know. There's, there's. I want a little bit of cuteness in there, but it has to be balanced out by like some just gnarly just, big shit. Because I'm thinking of like, I'm thinking of like, you know, the, the myriad bands that I saw in college, like indie rock bands coming around, and like, you know, a, a grown man coming through with just like just a Casio keyboard would not have been out of place. I mean, it's it almost in a way that's almost like the height of like twee. In oh, rock totally, music. totally. The, one of the ways I was looking at it too is just looking at the like the '90s like crappy guitar music. Like that was that was what you did. You got like a 
you know, a $20 guitar. Yeah. Uh, and it, it kind of stayed in tune, and yeah. you made a Sebado record or whatever. Sure. Um, and I was like, or like oh, Paul that's... McCartney, really? I right, mean, right, you got, right. I mean, you go right. all the way back. But, but, uh, but with, a, with a little bit of, like, fetishization sure. of, of the shittiness sure. of it. Yeah. And so that had been done, and I was like, well, I have this keyboard. Um, yeah, so, yeah, kind of the same thing you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It can't not be twee. It's a toy keyboard. Well, I, I, you've you've done you've done everything you can, whether consciously or not, to, to kind of move it away from that. I mean, right. I look at your. I've seen you perform live many times, and there's there's nothing twee about it. And and in fact, like you know, it's in a way the keyboard gets completely swallowed up by everything else. I mean, you've right. got you've got all the pedals, you've got everything else going on at the same right. time. So. We, so you, you learned, you kind of, like, that was your first musical instrument? That was the thing you learned to... Yeah. Yep. We had the sheet music for Chariots of Fire. Uh, and me and my brother would yeah. kind of try to figure out how to play it with the, like, reggae, like, backing track going. And it, yeah. fo- it just, it followed you? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe, I don't know, it's possible that I had to go back and dig it out of the basement at that point. I probably didn't bring it with me to New York thinking maybe this will come in handy. I probably thought, oh, maybe I should pick that up the next time I go home for Christmas. I just I kinda wanna go through that that you know, like what what ha- what's happening in this these months leading up to you're putting out this first E P where you're I guess, you know, maybe starting to play music again. Uh you, you know, you've forsaken the jazz guitar in a way, you've forsaken the the, the upright bass. You wanna make music, you look around the apartment and you see this tiny piano, is that I mean there was there was this basement in Bedsty in the apartment I was living in in like 1999 yeah uh, and I brought all my equipment there because I had a little bit more space in this place um, and one of the things I brought was that keyboard and I plugged it into all my guitar pedals and I was like oh this is this is it yeah. this is what I wanted to do yeah I was probably like this sounds like amps for Christ <laughs> um, and yeah this went with that and it's I, I, what what is it about it that 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 it's kind of stayed the nucleus to the setup for this long? I mean, at this point, it's kind of about making a point. I think. <laughs> I think that it's not. You know, I, I'm going to do other projects and maybe other things that have different names, but I think the Dan Friel records are going to continue to be about the setup a little bit because I think mm. that there's something a little bit special about an electronic project that I think of it as the like the BB King Lucille setup you know where you just have the the one instrument that you feel attached to and you yeah. that I have history with people don't generally do that as much I mean it happens but in electronic music it's frequently more about getting new sure. software yeah um, and I think that I think that I'm pretty lucky that the thing that I ended up wanting to do was something that ended up being versatile for for a time unique and like kind of special um and i think i'm just gonna stick with that yeah um unique and special and 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 versatile in that like you can you know it's not like it's not like you picked a singing saw or something which right you know wonderful sound but i you don't know if that can just be continue to just be your thing unless you're sitting outside of a farmer's market. Right. Well, okay, so in this scenario, 
the keyboard is my singing saw, but then I add like a tambourine on my foot. Okay. Because it's electronic music. And I, yeah. I can add like a, a, a sampler and like all this other stuff and still like pile things onto it. Um, but, uh, but I think that the reason I stuck with it initially was because it just sounded awesome to me and I didn't really feel inspired to go el- anywhere else. Lately, I feel like maybe I'd like to get into playing guitar again. Yeah. I've been writing for... I did a, a string quartet a couple oh. years ago um, where I just just wrote, didn't play, and that yeah. was really, really awesome and a really great writing experience. Um, but I think that at this point, I feel like having those parameters to write, knowing that it has to still involve this one instrument that mm. I've had since I was a kid, uh, is... They're helpful parameters for me. Yeah. 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 Because otherwise, if I'm just like, I'm going to make some electronic music, it can be a little too open-ended and just kind of sound like anybody else. I think that one of the things I can say at the end of the day, if nothing else, is my records generally just sound like me. Well, is, and, 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 and that's important that people know what they're getting when they pick up a Dan Friel record? No, I think, I mean, yeah, sure, that's, that's a good thing, but I was, I think, saying it more for myself. Yeah, uh, that I want it to be defined like recognizably me. Yeah, to myself. Like, and I think that's a, it's a special thing. I don't know. I feel lucky to have figured out anything that I can say like, I you know that's my signature thing. Yeah, and it's kind of recognizable to other people as that. Was it was it important to keep the solo stuff separate from the band stuff? There was always a little bit of like give and take. There's yeah. like the first Parts and Labor record has a bunch of songs that were solo rec- solo things. Um, like the the way Parts and Labor started was, uh, I was thinking I needed a backing band essentially for the keyboard. BJ saw me play and was like, "You should probably get a drummer." Uh, and so the first couple of shows were just me and BJ and Jim, the first drummer, doing band versions of things from my first solo EP. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there's always been like a little bit of bleed. It's, it, you know, it's, I, I don't know. It, 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 it seems like the solo stuff in a lot of ways is kind of poppier. Is that, I don't know if that's right, but I, you know, I think of like. Oh, totally. I mean, the, the Parts and Labor had like this very, like, more like punk yeah. like thing to it. And that, yeah. was, that was a goal, was like to take the keyboard that I was playing and somehow like add it to Fugazi. Um, still, I mean, that's because that's still that's still the center of everything. But it's it's the parts that you add on to it that end up defining the, yeah. the differences between the projects. Yeah, and and I guess and, and I assume that like putting on a show had to be a really big part of that. Like, you know, if you're gonna make this music, but it, but also go out and tour, like you've got to make it something kind of visually interesting, and you've got to engage the audience. And Absolutely. adding a drummer and adding another player is probably a big part of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely more of a show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I'm because th- I'm, I'm thinking like like a song like Ghost Town, right? I mean, that's like that had to have started off as a melody, right? That had to have started off as you whistling that. Oh yeah, totally. Because that's just, I mean, that's you can almost you can almost like pick which ones it seems like are like were born out of a melody because that's those melodies just started pouring out. That's Thanks. such a memorable. Yeah, hook, no, that those, song. Um, you're just a melody machine. Uh, I mean, I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. They just kind of are worse things to be. Yeah, they just come to my head. You just so you just kind of yeah. like you know like 
you know, cleaning the toilet and you start whistling something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Or I, you know, need to hum something to a toddler that doesn't want to go to sleep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, you know, when, when, when we talk about how having a kid has, has influenced the songwriting process, I mean, you like, you, this is another thing that's, this is like another force that's been brought into your life that like is making you generate melodies, right? In order to it's appease true. a child. It's that's true. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, and that, and I assume that something that you would, you know, hum or whistle to a baby or a toddler wouldn't necessarily make a great parts and labor record, you know? Yep. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very different way of thinking about music. I mean, yeah. it's called, the first song is called, it has the word lullaby in it. Yeah. It was a lullaby. Yeah. Inherently, the music's going to be a little bit different, right? Yep, it's true. But I mean, the solo records have had lullaby-esque things before. Yeah. Um, I can't totally blame it on Parenthood. Sure. I just happen to have been making music already. Yeah, that sort of lends itself lends itself to getting a kid to go to sleep. So you don't feel like it's sort of a kinder, kinder, gentler record having had a kid. I think it just pointed out to me. That I was making kids' music all along. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But you were making it... At deafening volume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you were, you, were, you, were, you were putting some barriers between the child going to sleep listening to this music. Right, right. And, I mean, were, 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 were you... Was there fear of being too poppy? Was there fear of it just, like... Being too hooky? No, I mean, I think you if had it to was mess too, it up a little bit. Was, well, I think that if it was straight pop, it would bore me. I, yeah. I think that I kind of I want it all. I want the, you know, the power of, you know, the music that excites me. You know, like extreme metal and punk and yeah. noise and all that stuff and all the stuff that I was excited about as a kid and continue to love. Um, but I'm not. I'm just not an angry person. Yeah. I think I realized... This is one of the things I realized when I was starting to do it's this stuff. It's hard being a punk when you're not angry. Um, well, I mean... You know, it's not that I lack anger at all, but it's just... As a performer, as somebody who like makes music, it just wasn't... Like, I... I can identify false metal, and I did not want to be false metal. Yeah. Um, and so... And I... I I like pop music and I want that that warmth you know and that like you know that little hair standing up on your neck aspect of it but I want the power of like all the harsh shit too so I don't think it's about being afraid of being too poppy I just want all of it well you know I without naming any names you know this was definitely I mean this is something that's been going on for a while but I, I felt a lot of this particularly like around New York City around like the early aughts of these bands who had these really great pop songs and then just you know somebody pointed this out to me about a, a particular band I, I think he's kind of dead on about it about like they just feel like they have to mess it up a little bit for the sake of messing it up that, that's the hard line to walk right right um, and if you're just doing that if you're just like fracturing it for the sake of fracturing it if it doesn't add something to the song, ultimately, then it detracts from it. Right, right. I mean, there's, like, the temptation to do that, to be like, I'm smart. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and look, we're doing something new. We're we're breaking ground. We're not just another. Right. Uh, but, you know, sometimes that's just fucking up the song. That's totally true. Yeah. Um, and I think that goes way back. I mean, I feel like I know for sure that the 1990s were riddled with songs sure. where people were just trying to make things more complicated than sure. they need to be. Um, but, yeah, there's a line that you have to draw and, like, figure out if you are second-guessing yourself too much. But it's not something I really worry about too much with myself because I know that there's just like those couple of things that I've heard through my life where I've been like that that's what I want I want yeah. a a beautiful song that sounds like a monster truck that just like is what feels right to me so you don't um, you don't necessarily re- look back on anything and wish you could unfuck it up a little bit the opposite probably yeah <laughs> yeah uh, so if you were gonna go and like do 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 the the uh, you know like the full spectre remastering? You just add another layer of sound on top of that. Yeah, yeah. The, that was that was actually part of the dynamic in Parts and Labor. Yeah. Was uh, BJ was generally the guy who was saying, "Why are we adding this noise?" And I was generally the guy who was trying to master everything, so it just kind of destroyed yeah. the entire you know structure. Um, I was the I was the guy trying to make everything noisier. Um, with the solo records, I've generally made them how I wanted to, but that was a band where certainly in places I compromised and would have made things more aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I was saying before, it probably resulted that compromise in the best music we made. I mean, if if, if parts and labor isn't uh, you know necessarily sustainable as being like a lifestyle or even being like a touring band, I mean that doesn't necessarily dissuade you from collaborating totally true the thing that collab that dissuades us from collaborating at this point is geography bj oh. is in north carolina oh, okay. and joe is in la yeah 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 but you know it's you know, 2016 yeah it's totally true um it's not something we've really talked about yet because yeah. everybody's kind of been busy with other things um, do, do you have i mean do you have to be in the same room for that dynamic to really work I think it would be hard for us to do something completely remotely. Yeah. Um, but I think we could do it. I think it's just a matter of getting to a point where we all have time for that. Sure. Um, and I know that we don't right now. Uh, but we've never ruled out the idea that we would like do something together. It would be. I mean, it would be. It would. Kind of, it's kind of an interesting experiment, and and you know, maybe even teach you something about your own music making of like taking a piece of something, adding something onto it, and sort of like batting the ball back to somebody. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it might happen at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I have anything else here. Yeah, it'll be interesting. To it's interesting for me to imagine sometimes what it would be like to do that. Um, I think about one thing. I think about is the idea of parts and labor coming back and doing just nothing but releasing recordings. Yeah, kind of the opposite of the cash in tour. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of doing it that way. Just continuing to, but you've, I mean, like, you've got to you've got to miss playing with them in a sure. live setting, right? For I mean, sure, that had yeah. to be a big part of the fun. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely more of just like a knee jerk reaction yeah. to the reunion reuniting of bands. The idea that we would just put out releases and not tour. Um, but I also think about like how weird it would be for that band to play Brooklyn in like 2016, 2017. Uh, and how different it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, Wolf Parade's <laughs> playing in like a week. <laughs> that guy uses the same toy keyboard. Oh. Uh, I, I remember figuring this out at some point, watching a video of them and being like, that's the guy who's bidding up my fucking Porta Sounds on eBay. Oh. 
It's probably not him. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you was that did that come after you? Do you did you lay the groundwork for that? Um, I I don't know the timeline. Is it, is it possible that two people just figured out that this was the perfect thing to to build a band? I around? mean, probably millions of people owned that keyboard. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, millions of people on the keyboard, millions of people probably pulled it out, but taking that next step is it a different thing entirely. Yeah. You know, yeah. of like, I'm sure every single person who owns that and listens to kind of weird music has thought for a second, like, oh, this would be interesting to really try to make music out of this. But yeah. you, you, you committed yourself to it, and you continue to commit yourself I to did. it. I did, I did. The commitment is deep. There you go. That was Dan Friel. Thanks so much to Dan for taking the time to do that. Uh, of, of all of the, the interview subjects whom I've known prior to doing an interview for the show, I think uh, meeting Dan was one of the, the more interesting. Um, I met him many years ago when I first moved to New York City, and I was an intern at The Onion, and Dan was working the reception desk. Uh, little did I know at the time, or at least when I first started, that he was also in a, a very amazing band called Parts and Labor. Uh, Dan was actually the one who used to give me assignments such as going to the uh, the different news boxes. This is this is so. I think I had only been in New York for a few months at this point, um, and I didn't know the city very well. And it was Dan's well. One of one of one of Dan's many jobs on top of uh, doing reception was um, giving the uh, the interns a list and telling us um, which news boxes we'd have to go around the city to different news boxes and make sure that they were a very specific distance from the curb, which um, was a surprisingly difficult task because one a lot of them have have cinder blocks on the bottom and are deceptively heavy and number two there are certain areas that you would go to um such as you know intersections by uh, nyu for example where you would come in on monday morning and they would just be like all of the village voice and um uh new york press and 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 onion news boxes were just piled on top of one another anyway that's how i know dan uh and have become a very big fan of his his stuff over the years both, uh, both through parts and labor and his his solo work. He's got a new album out right now on Thrill Jockey. Highly recommended, along with all of his other stuff. Uh, it's called Life. Check it out. Thanks to him for doing that. Uh, thanks to uh, thanks to Brian, as always, for editing the show together. Thanks to everybody at the Boing Boing Podcast Network. If you like the show, there are many other fine shows for you to check out over at boingboing.net. You can also check them out over at iTunes. And while you're over at iTunes, please take the opportunity. Please use the opportunity. Please leverage the opportunity to rate our show. Uh, that is all the payment that we're asking for at this point. We are, we are not asking you for money. We are not running ads at the moment. Just ask that uh, you give some positive feedback over there, and we can use that to uh, get uh, lots of awesome people for the show. So uh, rate and review us over there. Uh, follow us on Facebook. I think that's about it. Oh, if you have any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. You think I would have uh, 156 episodes and would have memorized all of this. Uh, you could follow us on Tumblr. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. That is rylcast.tumblr.com. Okay. That's about all I got, so uh, we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R.I.Y.L. R.I.Y.L.